Presentation Skills for Design Students, Episode 21. Hello and welcome to Presentation Skills for Design Students, the podcast dedicated to helping design students everywhere become confident, creative communicators. My name's Christina Cantor, and I'm here to help you speak with confidence, create compelling presentations, and communicate your ideas like the Dalai Lama. So get ready to take your next presentation to a whole new level. Yes, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm very excited about this week's episode. I am interviewing Matthew Frederick, author of 101 Things I Learned in Architecture School. More on that later. We're going to get straight into this week's story from studio. And this week's story comes from Will, who studied architecture in Wellington in New Zealand. Take it away, Will. Hi, Christina. This is a story from the very first time they reviewed a group of students on their work. Uh, Now, these were uh, architectural students in their first year of university, and they hadn't yet presented their work to anyone. Now, nevertheless, all went well until this one girl came to speak. Now, she was really visibly nervous, and she clearly assumed prior to the review that her work was no good and that we'd be very critical of it. Now, I'd barely even begun to speak when suddenly the nerves got too much for her and she went really pale. She dashed out of the room and she immediately vomited in a bin. But the funny thing is, her work was actually of a really high standard and she had just made an assumption prior to her presentation of how it would be perceived. Now, although the assumption was incorrect, she did end up making a very long-lasting impression on the reviewers, but for all the wrong reasons. I guess what I learned from this is that if you become too preoccupied with how your message is received rather than the message itself, this can dramatically overshadow your presentation. Just keep focused on what you can control, such as how you can present your work, rather than what you can't control, such as what the response will be once you're done. Oh my goodness, that poor, poor girl. Thank you, Will, for sharing that story with us. Now, if you have a story to share, I would love to hear it. And all you have to do is do what Will did and go to designdrawspeak.com slash story and just hit record and go for it. Okay, let's get into this week's interview with our special guest, Matthew Frederick. Matthew is an architect, educator and author of the well-known book, 101 Things I Learned in Architecture School. If you haven't read the book, it contains lots of really helpful lessons that I found super helpful when I was an architecture student. And, you know, I still find them helpful today. There's actually a story behind how I convinced Matt to say yes to being on the show. I actually made my own version of his book. And within the pages, I asked him if he would consider being a guest on the podcast. And then I mailed it to him. And then what I did was I actually, I made a slideshow presentation of the book and I uploaded that to SlideShare just to show everyone, you know, this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm getting various guests on the podcast. And somehow SlideShare featured it on their homepage and it's had over 4,000 views. Can you believe it? 
So if you haven't already, go check it out. It's at slideshare.net slash Christina Canters. But I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well at designdrawspeak.com slash 021. Now, in this interview, Matt and I delve a little deeper into four lessons from the book. And right at the end, Matt actually shares with us what he believes is the most important skill you can work on right now that's going to be of the most value to you when you get out into the real world after graduating. So make sure you stick around for that. Matthew Frederick, I'm so excited to have you as my guest on the podcast this week. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, this is a real treat. Thank you, Christina. Now, you're an architect and an educator and also the author of one of my favorite books of all time. And I'm not just saying that. It really is. Uh, 101 Things I Learned in Architecture School. Now, I know a lot of my peers and listeners are familiar with this book. So I'm, I'm just curious, would, would you be willing to share the story behind the book? Yes. Um, there, there's the, sort of the short uh, version of the story and the long one. Uh, the, the long one goes all the way back to when I was a student and was frustrated with the difficulties of architecture school. Um, it, it, as, as you know, architecture school is, is confusing. The lessons are very diffuse. They, they weave in and out of each other, and every time you learn something, the next thing you learn uh, seems to undo it. Or you'll have one uh, critic uh, show up to, to look at your project and tell you the exact opposite of what the previous critic told you. So who's right? You know, they both could be right, but as an 18 or 20-year-old, it's hard to understand that that could be the case. And, and I found that I and other students were somewhat desperately grasping for something firm to hold on to. And at the same time, I think the instructors were were quite hesitant to give us firm things to hold on to because they didn't want us to think that making architecture was a recipe, that we could just accumulate things and then be a good architect. Uh, and that's, that is understandable as well. Uh, but I, I did feel all along that, that there was a way to be clearer than, than was evident in my schooling. So some years later when I began to teach, um, and I taught at a number of colleges, and then I ended up teaching full-time, uh, started a brand-new program at a community college. Now, if your listeners aren't familiar with uh, community colleges, um, it's an open, open enrollment uh, format, so anybody with a checkbook and a pulse can apply. And that's the great thing about community colleges because they provide access to a college education for folks that normally can't uh, have that. Uh, but you also end up with a lot of students who are underprepared, perhaps have learning disabilities, distractions, life circumstances that make it difficult for them to learn. So I had to come up with ways of bringing the, the complexity of architecture to that audience. And uh, so I, I, I simply got, I think I got better over those years, boiling my message down to, to simpler and simpler um, concepts. Oh, I love that. And you know, there's something, and there's something that I like to do with, with all my interviewees on the podcast and that's to ask them about the two things and what you've just spoken about in terms of the story behind your book relates totally to the this concept of the two things which is all about distilling one subject or topic down into just two things that you really need to know and everything else is just an application of those things or it's just not important so 
for you, I guess, with, with that book, you've really distilled this whole wealth of knowledge down into those 101 things, which is very cool. But what I'd like to ask you about your two things is there, can you, can you choose two things out of those 101 things that could basically sum up your experiences in a, as an architecture student? The two things that stand out above all others, well, I would say they don't necessarily relate to communication, not, not directly. They're, they're somewhat more abstract concepts. Um, so uh, the w- one is uh, my training in figure ground okay. or object field or you know, whichever language one cares to use. Uh, it was really an eye-opener to realize that space is a critical aspect of architecture. And um, Louis Kahn said that uh, architecture is the thoughtful making of space. Well, that was a little weird because, wait a minute, space, that's emptiness, isn't it? Uh, So how can you thoughtfully make emptiness? Uh, I was, at the time, focused on architecture as an object, as a building, freestanding in the landscape. And I didn't understand the spatial component, which uh, relates to how we engage architecture emotionally, obliquely, um, uh, and, and, and so forth. So figure ground and, and you know, seeing space, that was, that was one. And I think the other was learning process. And, and these two things are related. Uh, uh, learning process as opposed to fixating on product. Uh, an architect has to marshal all kinds of resources to make a building work, has to deal with all kinds of consultants, and a client who maybe doesn't understand anything at all about how buildings work, and you have to button it all up uh, and meet the building code by the time the key goes in the front door. Um, So you have to be a master of process. You can't start in a place that says, here's what I want my building to look like. You can't do that. You have to simply uh, know how to model through, how to get people onto the same page, and then very gently shepherd that process to a conclusion. I love so, that. So yeah. process, process and figure ground. I would say those are the two things. Can we just stick on that process for a bit? I actually, so in this episode, I really wanted to just draw out a few of those points that you make in the book, uh, specifically looking at design communication. You just mentioned, you just mentioned process and that's one of the, that relates to one of the points I wanted to talk about, which is number 86 in the book, which is manage your ego. Now, you write that it's important to manage your ego throughout the design process and you just explained how you need to think about what does this building want to be rather than what do you want the building to be. Do, do you think this also applies to a design presentation in terms of managing your ego? It sure does. Um, and both for, I guess from both ends, uh, I think uh, students and architects uh, sometimes hesitate to assert their ego when it's appropriate, but then they also inject it when it's not appropriate. So um, here's an example that I see all the time with students, and and I I really wish they could hold the ego in check here. Students will present and say, I wanted my building to do X. Uh, I wanted my building to have layers. I wanted the front door to be here. And I really think that I want doesn't belong in that conversation at all. Um, You you need to uh, articulate what the building wants, and if that sounds too abstract, then what the client wants, what the site needs, what the uh, prevailing breezes suggest, what the sun suggests, what existing circulation patterns on the site and nearby suggest about the entrance location. So what you want, um, it's just not part of that, of that discussion. 
Um, now, on the other hand, what I see uh, some very good architects uh, doing is because they understand the need to um, shepherd the process and not not assert their ego, they will sometimes, and I've had this, this, this problem too, not, we don't always assert our expertise where we need to. So sometimes clients want to go down paths that can be foolish. And, and we don't want to say, we don't want to tell them you're being foolish. I think it's our job to often we have to do what the client asks, even though we, we feel it's not the right path. So we, you know, I think we do that work, but then we also say, here are the other ways that we could come at this and put those in front of the client as well. And, and make sure that you've asserted the reasons why one scheme or one idea is better than another. Don't wait for the client to always catch up. Mm, and that's a, it's an interesting balance there that I guess would come with experience and just, and just learning through that process. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, it's very delicate. And I'm, no matter how I explain it uh, over the years, I always feel like I've, I've, I've misstated it because uh, it's, it's really about the balance. It's not about um, uh, hitting people over the head with your knowledge or your, your needs uh, it's about understanding that you're, you do have knowledge as an architect and, and that that has to be balanced with all of the other considerations of the, of the client and, and of the project. There's another lesson in your book, 101 Things I Learned in Architecture School, that I'd like to explore a little bit further with you. And it's going back to basics. It's number one. And it's how to draw a line. Now, this I know this may sound very simple to our listeners, but I'm I'm always impressed by designers who are able to draw lines that just look really cool and just designery, and it's something that I just haven't been that great at. Can Can you please explain why this is such an important fundamental skill to have? Yes, I think I can, um, and and I'm also thinking if I can digress for just a moment. Sure. I'm thinking back to um, my very first. Um, Instruction in drafting. Um, I went to a community college myself before I went to um, architecture school, and uh, my instructor was a, a very experienced practicing architect, very talented. And I remember the day that he stopped by my desk and picked up my pencil to show me how to draw something, and the way he handled that pencil got my attention like nothing else. Just the way he held it in his hand, the way he put it to the paper, there was an authority to it, to, to his mannerisms. And I had no idea that it was possible to handle a pencil in that way. He conveyed so much to me just by picking it up. Um, so, so when an architect draws a line, and, and there are different kinds of lines, but I, I'd say the, the most specific kind of line we need to draw, it, it, we tend to have a little blob at the beginning of the line and at the end of it. Uh, and what that conveys is a certain degree of conviction about the purpose of that line. If you feather and fuzz your way across a page, it suggests that um, you don't know what you're doing and, 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 and that you don't know why you're making the line. And sometimes you don't, or maybe most of the time you don't. But the fact that you even have it in your hand suggests um, you have an intent. And a firm beginning and a firm end suggest intent. Now, the more you get, you know, if it's, if it's uh, early in the design process, your lines might look very feathery and sketchy, but the farther you go into the design process, as your decisions get more firm, the more your lines should take on this quality, firm beginning, firm end. 
That's that's just like speaking as well, right? If you say something, Wait, what, with, if you say like when you're speaking, if you say something and you show real intent and purpose, your your ideas come across as much more believable. And that's I hadn't thought about it that way in terms of also drawing a line. Well, and I I don't think I had butted it up in my own mind the way you just did. And seeing as I'm wandering about here with my answers, I'm thinking, yes, I need to button up my answers more cleanly, firm beginning, <laughs> firm end, and, and, be, and be done with the message. <laughs> cool. All right. So everyone, practice your line drawings. And if you want more tips on that, go check out the book. Okay, next one. Number 48. If you can't explain your ideas to your grandmother in terms that she understands, you don't know your subject well enough. Now, I love this. This is all about jargon. What are your thoughts? Why, why do you think architects and design students feel the need to use jargon when explaining a project? And, and is it necessary? Oh, boy, this, this one can really wear me out. Um, I have been a, a design critic at, at many colleges, and some are worse than others. Some are much worse than others. But, uh, but, but jargonism is a problem at so many schools. Why is it a problem? Uh, maybe it goes back to architecture being complex and confusing, and a way of negotiating that is to use big words that keep other people confused. Now, granted, a lot of these discussions you can't make clear to your grandmother, so this is more of an ideal than maybe a practicality. You want to try to make your ideas clear to your grandmother, but will your grandmother understand them? No, but treat that as an ideal. Yeah. Well, maybe your grandmother will. I don't <laughs> assume that. Well, you're but, doing very well if she does understand. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, every field does have jargon. It's, it's necessary. Uh, architects need to be able to use words like parti to talk to each other about things that we understand. But you can't necessarily throw words like that in front of a client mm. or so in front depends of on your a audience. room full of beginning. Right, mm. right. Now, I, have, I just have a little example from your book here that you illustrated, and it's quite funny. You've got a cartoon of of um, what the design tutor saying to the student, certainly a multiplicity of similars would better reflect the perturbance of the modularity, given the particularity of the language established by the axial relationships. <laughs> can you provide? Can you provide any sort of translation for that? No. <laughs> All right. Thank I actually lifted that from a conversation that went on in a design studio at uh, Wentworth Institute in Boston. And I don't think that people throwing those words around were, were being completely serious. But uh, I remember when I drew this cartoon and, and captioned it and I used all these r ridiculous phrases, I thought, I, I, I'm a little bit afraid that maybe I am saying something there that's wrong and I don't even realize it. So I was... I was a little nervous about putting this out into the world, thinking that somebody's going to look at that and say, this guy doesn't even know what he's talking about. Well, no, I don't. <laughs> I, that's kind of, that was kind of the point. I haven't seen too much of that sort of language used, but I'm sure it does happen, of course. Oh, well, lucky you then. <laughs> okay, now the last point in the book, 101 Things I Learned in Architecture School, that I'd like to ask you about is number 57, and that is, an effective oral presentation of a studio project begins with the general and proceeds towards the specific. Now with this, you provide a short series of steps to take when putting together a studio presentation. And one of these is something that I think a lot of people overlook. 
and that is discuss the values, attitude and approach you brought to the design problem. Now, I'm just wondering, in, in your opinion, why is this so important, showing your values and your attitude? Well, you're talking, I assume, here, uh, when I say you, I mean the, the person presenting yes. is, is presenting to a group of critics, uh, the instructor of the, of the studio, uh, some other faculty members, uh, perhaps some visiting uh, architects. And the jo- critics have two jobs. Uh, one is to critique your approach to the project. And after a certain point in that conversation, their job is, it moves to the second thing, which is to accept your approach and critique how well you did at meeting your own goals. So I think that's why this is important. If, if you arrive at a project um, uh, and, and at a presentation saying that um, I thought that this project fundamentally had to be concerned with promoting the interweaving of social relationships among the users of the building, that this was a fundamental value or attitude that you had. But it turns out that the, the, the project was something very different from that. It was a research building in which people didn't interact. They were doing solitary work. So there's a lot of room for discussion there, perhaps, among the critics and yourself. You know, what, are we, what is this building really about? And there could be a lot of disagreement. Hmm. But at some point in that conversation, the critics, I think, have to say, all right, we, you know, we did perhaps disagree with you, but now we accept your values and we're going to go inside them and see how well you did. Hmm. I think that's something that everyone should really take into consideration when they're working out what they're going to say in their, in their design presentation. I'm looking at the, the drawing uh, that, I, that I have with that lesson. I have a student kind of pointing to his drawing and a few uh, uh, folks in the audience are looking at him. Um, that body language uh, to me indicates, um, it makes sense to me as I drew it, but it, it, it points out a problem I see a lot of students having in their presentation. And that is this, that as they stand up in front of their, their drawings or, or to the side of them and, and address their audience, their body language is frequently turned to the drawing, and there are often these vague gestures that the students will make toward the drawing, even though they're not actually pointing to something on the drawing. So, you know, we have these things pinned on the wall, and we want to kind of acknowledge them, but if you're not talking about the drawing, stand and face your audience and, and, and talk to them, face them straight on, um, and, and, and have eye contact with them. Gesture to the drawings when you actually are talking about the drawings. Yeah, I think that comes from a sort of self-consciousness because I know people tend to use their their drawings or their slides as their bit of security blanket and they feel like if they're sort of facing their drawings they just feel a little bit safer I think that's why people tend sure, to do that sure do. yeah it's it's hard yes. to it's hard to turn around from your drawings and be in the mindset of I don't need them to speak I can I can just stand here and speak and face the audience but that's scary for a lot of people it is I, I sometimes wonder and, and presentation methods have are changing because of PowerPoint. So I actually see studio presentations given electronically in many cases now. But even if you're doing a traditional uh, pinup of, of drawings, uh, maybe you want to consider doing them in a flip fashion so you don't have a whole wall of drawings that you constantly feel need, the need to gesture to. Or maybe you keep some of your drawings covered if you only reveal the ones or one that you're talking about. Uh, so that you're not con- you don't you know continually feel this gravitational pull toward this presentation on the wall. Mm. That's really cool. All right, everybody, take that on board. Okay, I think we've got 
just enough time for one last question. Matt, can you please share with us what's something that you wish you could have learnt in architecture school that would have helped prepare you more for life as a professional designer? Oh boy, that's that that requires a, I think a, a horizontal couch and a psychotherapist um, <laughs> to really delve into. Oh, don't into. say that. <laughs> well, let let me uh, maybe just go back to where we started in regard to our discussion of of process. Sure. That as an architect, you will be managing a process, or and and I even hate the word managing because that suggests some sort of top down. Uh, disposition, uh, but but you're you're shepherding and managing and coaching people and and herding trying to herd them in a general direction, and they're going to resist the, the consultants and other people on your staff are going to, uh, or your boss are going to resist that direction uh, for good reasons. So you have to manage this pro- uh, shepherd this process in some way, make sense out of a building in which people are pulling every which way. That is a skill you have to develop in school design process and not design process in terms of simply where the lines go on the page design process managing all of the factors that need to go into the building not making decisions too quickly always looking at all the alternatives not falling in love with your own ideas because they will get taken away from you in the real world faster than they get taken away from you in school and when I grade uh, my, my students in design studios I typically give them uh, three grades, for one for, for um, I call it process, product, and partee. So you know, process is design process, how well they manage all of these resources and ideas, whether they're good at um, keeping their ego out of it, whether I see them, their skills as adaptable to the workplace. Uh, product meaning the, the drawings and models that they build, and then finally, Part T, that is how effective is the design concept they came up with. And students can have a great project and a great presentation, but they don't get a great grade in process sometimes. And that can be frustrating because that's the invisible part, isn't it? Mm. Um, but but it's, it, it might be the most important thing you take out, with, take out into the real world after graduation. That's a great insight. I wish I'd known that when I was in architecture school, just really focusing, really taking that process out into the workplace. Oh, well, yeah, I don't think I knew it, and I don't—I wasn't really taught design process until I did my my uh, thesis, and I had an advisor who was um, very, very big on process, very much not product focused. He didn't particularly care what the building looked like. He just really, really just kept grinding away on on how effective my design process was. It was a great lesson. Yes, and I think that's a lesson that all of us designers can take away and learn from as well. What a great point to end on. Matthew Frederick, thank you so much for sharing all your wonderful stories and advice with us today. You've been absolutely wonderful. Thank you, Christina. And um, this has been a real treat. And um, I hope your listeners have found my book useful. And um, if not, then uh, I guess uh, we'll wait for the next one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, where can they find your book? Uh, It is available at uh, brick-and-mortar retailers. Every Barnes & Noble has it. Independent bookstores uh, mostly seem to carry it. It's on Amazon uh, and and so forth. And uh, I have a series of 101 Things I Learned books as well. I don't know if you know that, but uh, we have Engineering School, which might appeal to some students, and and, and a few other titles. There's a Fashion School one as well, isn't there? Yes, there is. Fashion School, Film School. Well, I'll I'll, I'll put a link to 
to those books in the show notes so everyone can go check that out if they haven't already. All right, well, thanks again, Matt, and, uh, and all the best. And I look forward to seeing what happens with the 101 Things I Learned series. My pleasure, best. Christina. Thank you. <laughs> thanks again, Matthew Frederick, for joining me on the podcast this week. I learned so much from him during that interview, and I'm sure you've taken away plenty of things as well. Now, your challenge this week. Remember how Matt was talking about the importance of drawing a line with a firm beginning and a firm end to really express your intent? Well, this week, I'd like you to practice taking that approach, but applying it to the way that you speak. So, for example, if you're at a restaurant and you're ordering food and the waitress asks you for your order, here's an example of ordering a salad, but speaking with a really flaky, weak beginning and weak ending. Um, okay, uh, let me see. Can I get um, the Caesar salad um, without the dressing? Okay, thank you. All right. So what I'd like you to do is practice your a strong, firm beginning to, to when you speak and, and also a firm ending. So that same sentence could sound something like this. Hello, yes, I'd like the Caesar salad, please, without the dressing. Thank you so much. Can you hear the difference? Speaking with authority instead of sounding like you're not really sure. Now, that might require you to pause for a second to prepare your response, but it's great practice for when you're in a higher pressure situation where it's really important to speak with that confidence and to speak with that real intent. So practice in these everyday situations. Give that a go and I'd love to hear how you find it and if it helps you. And on that note, that brings us to the end of episode 21. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I really appreciate it. And you know what I also appreciate? All the people who have left lovely, lovely iTunes reviews for me. Now, if you haven't done that already, I would love you dearly if you were to leave a quick rating and a review in iTunes. All you have to do is go to designdrawspeak.com and follow the links there to iTunes to leave the review. It's the best way for this show to get noticed and discovered by more people. Anyway, I will see you all next week. And until next time, this has been Presentation Skills for Design Students, helping you become a confident, creative communicator.